Please be seated. Turn uh, your attention now to the next section of your bulletin. We believe that God's kingdom is uh, especially revealed um, in certain practices. And we uh, believe that uh, one of those practices in which God's kingdom is specially revealed to us is uh, by being with children. That there is uh, something about Um, the posture, the place of children among us that reveal God's kingdom to us, what it's about, what it's like, how we tend to it. And so because of that, we honor and recognize our children's presence among us. So kids, uh, be ready for your part. I see a few of you guys. Children of God, the Lord be with you as you worship. Amen. Uh, The writer to the Hebrews says of Jesus, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray as we listen to God's word. Our prayer tonight, God, as we continue to worship, as we continue to surrender ourselves to your word, is that you would make us the kinds of people who are eagerly waiting for your kingdom and your salvation to break forth in our lives. We pray that your spirit would illuminate for us both uh, this scripture and our lives and the world around us, so that we can uh, not only hear your word, but that we can digest it and we can obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we've been talking about for a couple, couple weeks, many weeks now, is about how at the heart of salvation is communion. That's what salvation in many ways is about, is that God has come among us in Jesus Christ in order to restore communion. And we've talked about how that's even, um, that emphasis is something that we want to be at the heart of who we are as a community. The people who are attentive and responsive to how God is restoring communion. So uh, tonight what we're going to look at, so that's like the what. That's like the what of salvation. The what of salvation is communion. God is, God is restoring communion between us and him and us and one another. And tonight, what our passage in Hebrews opens up for us, and really what this whole text of Hebrews opens up for us, is not just the what of communion, but the how of communion. And a way of talking about what the how of communion is, a word for that, is atonement. Now, atonement, uh, I don't know how that word hits you, but it could hit you in, in multiple ways. It may be a word that makes no sense to you at all. Like one of those Jesus Christian lingo stuff that maybe you've even heard it for a while by being in church, but you've kind of pretended because everyone else nodded their head like they understood what it meant that you understood too. So maybe you don't even know what it means. Or, or maybe um, there is a specific uh, uh, theory of the atonement um, that's really special to you and that has been really meaningful to you. 
or maybe there's a, a specific theory of the atonement, or, or maybe only um, if you're anything like me in the kinds of uh, circles that I grew up in, one very specific theory of the atonement that you grew up with that you either appreciate or you don't appreciate and hasn't been helpful for you. So we're going we're gonna to look a little bit about, or we're going to talk a little bit about the atonement. So a little, <laughs> part of the reason I'm saying this is just, like, prepare your hearts for what's coming. <laughs> that sounds more um, auspicious than I mean for it to be. What we're saying is that atonement describes the inner mechanics of communion. Communion is what we want our identity and our purpose to be about. And what atonement describes is the inner mechanics of communion. And what we're affirming is that those inner con- mechanics of communion matter. The how of communion, how it is that, that in Christ God restored communion with us matters. And it matters because it actually shapes the way that we live our lives. And maybe even some of you especially who feel um, like atonement is particularly confusing or, or the, the theory of atonement that's been given to you is particularly confusing. Maybe you've even seen particularly how it's, it's shaped your life for good or for bad. So we're just affirming that it matters. And we're affirming something else too. And this is part of the good news that I want to proclaim tonight is that my goal here isn't to give you the better atonement theory. (laughs) And our goal here isn't even uh, just to analyze it or to get it exactly right. But part of what we're affirming is that we gather here not just to, to analyze atonement, but to indwell it. That's what we want to do, is, is we want to indwell atonement. And what we're affirming here is that inasmuch as atonement has to do with sin, that we understand what sin is by, by, by opening our eyes and by confessing it. And so we've already started that process tonight. And inasmuch as atonement is about Jesus, that we, we, and what God has done in Jesus, that we, we be, actually begin to grasp what God has done for us in Christ, we grasp that by approaching the throne of grace, which is from Hebrews. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so that's, that's at the heart for us, is that this isn't just something that we want to analyze, but that we want to indwell, because we're affirming that we can't really know a thing. We can't really know what a thing is or what a thing does unless we put our full weight into it. Are you tracking with me? We can't really know what a thing is. I mean, maybe it's a chair. (laughs) You know, we can't really know what a chair is or what a a chair does until we put our full weight into it. The good news tonight, Christ the King, is that you can put your full weight into the good news that you have access to communion with God. If you don't hear anything else that I say tonight, hear that you can put your full weight into the reality that we have access to communion with God through Christ. In the ancient world, uh, sacrifices were, were characteristic of, of many facets of the ancient world, not just ancient Israel, but other parts of the ancient world as well. And um, people thought that the blood of animals uh, did something. 
They thought that the, um, the blood of, of creatures uh, did something. They thought that it accomplished something. And so people um, in the ancient world were uh, especially, and even in many parts of the world today, are especially familiar and, and close to sin and brokenness and destruction um, around them. Like they didn't, they, don't have, they didn't have a lot of the things that we have to kind of buffer ourselves from the realities of pain and suffering. It was just like more, like death was just at people's doorstep. It was something that they had to reckon with all of the time. And for them, what blood did is that part of what it did is it, is it, it accomplished something. For them, it was this uh, release valve. So you got all this stuff that's just like accumulating, all this bad stuff, either that you see around you in this world, or this bad stuff that's accumulating in you, or this bad stuff that you can't control. And so what the blood did, they sacrificed them, and it was like a release valve. They had to keep doing it over and over again. You had to keep doing it, keep pacifying and satisfying uh, whatever um, gods that you were sacrificing to, but it was a release valve. And so part of what I want to draw attention to is that as we think about that, we might think, well, that's kind of silly. Like, that ancient people would think that the blood of animals, like, did something or accomplished something. But what I want to suggest is that we still live in a world where we want blood. We still live in a world where we want blood. The modern world may think this is weird, but the truth is, is that things are not right. And it doesn't take a lot of hard work for us to either look in and on our own lives or or look in those who are near to us or look out in the world to see that things are not okay. That, That things are broken, that humanity is broken, that human relationships are broken. And not only that, but that we are complicit in that brokenness. That we can't avoid it. And that we still want blood. We are still looking for a release valve. The, the only thing about the modern world is not that they're not looking for blood or looking for a release valve. It's just that it's changed. And a lot of it has kind of like come down in on ourselves too. There are two stories uh, from uh, soon after I got married that um, illustrate a little bit of this feeling of not being able to escape the fact that like things are not well and we're complicit in it. Um, one was when I was installing blinds. This may have been like, I don't know, Carly, if you remember what year this was, but I was installing blinds um, and uh, in our house. And I don't know if you guys have ever had to install blinds before, but at least in my experience, the installation of blinds is an especially difficult and frustrating process. Like, given a lot of different things. And so, one of the things that, like, when you get married, you kind of come in with a really high view of, of the kind of person that you're going to be. Anybody can say amen to that. And so, I had this picture um, that was very near to me of a person that I didn't want to be. Even, there was even a person whose face I could see that I knew that that when I got frustrated, when something messed up and didn't happen, like I wanted it to, man, I look back at you and that was a mistake. <laughs> Sneaky cry. That, that I didn't want to be that person. And I promised myself. 
And I intended with all of my desire that I was not going to be that person. And I don't know how, this was pretty soon into marriage, but those blinds, like without me even thinking about it, I became that person. The words that came out of my mouth, what my mouth, what my body did, I became the person that I didn't want to be. I read the Bible. I was a theology study, whatever. Another story, uh, soon after we got married, um, again, keeping in mind the fact that all these promises, these good ideas that I had about who I was going to be, um, I walked into the office. Uh, this may have been even within the first month of marriage. I walked into the office of the person who was the chaplain uh, at the seminary that Carolise and I were at at the time, and a person who actually I, I still trust and love very much, a good friend of mine. And I was talking to him about something that had to do with our marriage. It wasn't a big thing. It was just a small thing. And it kind of seemed like it came out of nowhere, but he just looked at me in the eye and he said, Seth, you know that you're going to wound Carolisa probably more than anyone ever has wounded her before. What? I couldn't wrap my head around the reality that despite my best intentions and desires, that I'm complicit. That I often become the person that I tell myself very seriously that I don't want to be. And that despite my best intentions, despite how good of a Christian I am, I'm going to hurt and wound other people. Can you relate to this? And in order to deal with the pressure of that reality, I seek release valves. I seek release valves in order to deal with the pressure of that reality. I try to ignore it. I use different things to numb from it. I guilt and shame myself and others into being better. I seek all of these release valves in order to, to get some pressure off from it. What's your release valve? It's a lie that we can ignore the effects of sin. The truth is we are affected. We need a release valve. And the bad news is that the release valve doesn't get the job done. It doesn't get the job done. If you know anything about the release valve that you use is that you return to it over and over again. It doesn't get the job done. It covers up the stench, but it doesn't deal with the dead body. Are you tracking with me? It's like putting makeup on a zombie. <laughs> Thanks, Jude. The release valve may even make us feel better temporarily. It may make us feel better temporarily. But the release valve, even the most religious versions of the release valve, even the most uh, hardcore levers of guilt and shame and beating ourselves up for how bad we are, it doesn't heal what's distorted. It doesn't heal what distorted. It does not restore communion. The release valve does not restore communion. Christ the King, the good news that we proclaim tonight is that we are freed from seeking blood through these release valves. We are freed from seeking blood through these release valves. Christ has joined our broken humanity. Christ has joined our broken humanity fully, all the way down to death in his sacrificial self-offering. And he has nullified the power of sin and death by making access for restored communion with God. Christ has joined our humanity all the way down to sin and death by his self-sacrificial giving. 
He has nullified the power of sin and death by making access for restored communion with God. And that means that we can live. We can actually live like we have access to communion with God. We can put our weight into it, Christ the King. Right? Because there's a difference between acknowledging these things with our heads and actually putting our weight into it. Actually living like we believe that Christ has made access for communion with God. We can put our weight into this. In, in Hebrews chapter 2, we're in chapter 9, but it's kind of hard to pick up in chapter 9. Because um, there's a lot going on in Hebrews. But Hebrews is, is, again, getting at the inner mechanics of communion. And one of the key passages in Hebrews that helps us understand what the author is saying in chapter 9 is, is in chapter 2. And the author says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Translation is crazy out there. Like, it's crazy out there. And not just out there. It's crazy in here. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is, to Jesus. But we do see Jesus. We don't, it's crazy out there, but we do see Jesus, who tasted death on our behalf. He became like us. Christ became like us in every way, so that through death... He might destroy the power of death so that humanity might be freed from slavery to fear and death. This is atonement 101 in Hebrews. This is the inner mechanics of communion. And here it is. I'm just going to try to articulate it as simply as possible. Atonement as simply as possible. Jesus does what we cannot do. Jesus did what we cannot do by fully joining with us. Fully joining with us, Christ did for us what we could not do without him. Namely, heal broken communion. Christ shares, he joins our broken humanity. He experiences the full effects of anti-communion. Christ experiences, by sharing in our humanity, he experiences the full effects of anti-communion so that we might experience communion. Atonement. As simple as I could put it. I know that there's a lot more to say about that, and I'm not going to say it all right now. We should go get coffee and talk about it because it's important. And so we have chapter 9. We have Christ as our representative, as the one who joins with us, Christ now enters heaven itself, enters into God's presence on our behalf, the author says, as our mediator, as our, how, as our high priest. And by doing this, by joining with us all the way down to death, Christ offered himself once for all, once for all. Of course, the author here is playing off of and seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, like where all this stuff had to be over and that had to be done over and over again, where the blood of bulls and goats had to be sacrificed over and over again, but it didn't get the job done. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus got the job done once for all. He was the mediator. He gets the job done. And this is the key point: is that because Jesus gets the job done, we are free. You are free to live like we have a high priest who is fully identified with us and who has made access to communion with God. You're freed to live like you have a high priest who fully identifies with you, 
who gets you, who understands, who has drawn your broken humanity into his humanity, and who has made access to communion with God. The point, the point of mediation, the point of mediation isn't that you have an angry father who's angry with us because of our sin and can't stand us, but fortunately we have Jesus to stand in the way of an angry father. That's not primarily what mediation is about here. It's not what Jesus does. The point is, of, of Jesus' mediation, is that we can't do what, we can't restore communion because we're in bondage. Hurt can't heal hurt. You've heard the phrase, hurt people can't, or hurt people hurt people? Like, hurt can't heal hurt. We need mediation because we couldn't do it. We live in disfigured, destructed vision, or images of, of God's image, of humanity. And this comes out uh, by giving trust and allegiance and things that, to, to things that are not God. And all sorts of idolatry, including um, giving trust and allegiance only to ourselves. So Jesus does what we cannot do because we couldn't do it. And then Jesus acts on our behalf. This is part of what atonement is about. Jesus acts on our behalf. And get this, this is, this is key. He acts on our behalf not so that we can keep a distance and don't have to get involved in the mess. It's not so that we don't have to do anything. It's not so that we don't have to get involved in the mess. Jesus acts on our behalf so that we can go in. Jesus acts on our behalf so that we have access, so that we can go in. Jesus is, is making possible for us what wasn't possible uh, for God's people, for Israel. I don't know if you remember this moment when this is right after the giving of the law in Exodus 20, I think, and they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is actually going to speak. His voice is going to speak to his people. They're gathered around Mount Sinai. There's, there's not going to be a mediator in that sense. And God's people say, no thanks. Moses, you do it for us. We don't want to get involved. This is too much for us. We will not approach. Jesus acts on our behalf, not so that we don't have to go in, but so we, we can go in with him, so that we can have access. Notice in verse 28, this is, this is the last key point that I'm going to point out in this passage. In verse 28, the author said that Jesus is coming a second time. Jesus is coming again. Not to deal with sin. Jesus is coming again not to deal with sin. Do you live like Jesus has already dealt with sin? Are you seeing the implication here? Do you live like Jesus has already dealt with sin and when Jesus comes again, he's not going to deal with sin? Do you live like Jesus has already dealt with sin? Because most of us, I think, and I, me, I often live like this is not true. I often live like Jesus hasn't been our once-for-all high priest and sacrifice. I live like there needs, there's some other work that needs to be done in order for me to be worthy, in order for me to have access, in order for me to actually commune with people. Do you live like Jesus has already dealt with sin? Or do you live under the guilt and shame that your bad stuff needs to be punished or dealt with or, or reckoned with? 
Those who live as if Christ hasn't already dealt with sin live, as the author says in chapter 2, in the bondage to fear and death. To live as if Jesus hasn't dealt with sin is to live in bondage to fear and death. Get this, because this is really important, because part of the implication of being included in Christ is that he goes with us into our death. The death that he dies for us means that we can go with him. We can die well. Because part of the dynamic of communion, part of what's at work in communion, is always a death. There's always a death to selfishness, a death to superiority, a death to greediness, a death to jealousy, a death to self-protection, a laying down of my life in some way in order to commune with God or others. There's always a laying down. There's always a taking up the cross. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, you have been crucified with Christ. The point is that we can die well. And that that kind of death, the kind of laying down of our life in order to be in communion with God and others, in order to step into that, that kind of laying down of our life will not separate us. That kind of death will not separate us from true life. This is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. That kind of death will not separate us from life. It's not the end of the things that matter most. We no longer need to live in the fear of that kind of death. That is the implication of Jesus' atonement of our sins, is that we can actually live as if we're not afraid to die because God raises from the dead. And the point isn't that our sin is just like magically gone, right? Like we still have residual junk in our life. The point is that the power of sin to keep us turned away from God and turned away from one another is nullified. The power of sin is nullified. Here's here's a quick example of that. Uh, There is a there is I have a relationship with someone. There's a relationship in my life um, that has a particular painful history. There's some wounds with me and this person. And because of those wounds, because of that particularly painful history, my relationship with that person is just all weird. Like, it's not a good relationship. In fact, I avoid lots of conversations. I avoid lots of things. I, man- I manage it. I numb it in order to avoid that hurt. It's just easier for me. And recently, I was talking to another friend about my relationship with this person and that friend said to me, you know, Seth, this person, they, this person just wants you to comfort them. And like, it's like I understood the concept. I understood the words that were coming out of my friend's mouth. But it's like, for some reason, my body did not know how to act as if that was true. That's the power of sin to keep us distant from God and one another. I felt resistance in my body to actually live like, like the, God could do something in that. That is the power of sin. But Christ the King, we have been given access to commune with God. We can put our full weight into the reality of communion. We cannot hate, shame, guilt ourselves or others back into communion with God. That doesn't get the work done. We can't fix or avoid or medicate our way back into communion with God. Those release valves don't get the work done. Christ has done the work. He did the work by fully joining with us. He did it for us. 
And now as a result, we are free to put our weight into communion. Where are you being invited to put your weight into communion tonight? Putting our weight into communion means taking our finger off of whatever release valve is most helpful for us. What is that for you? Is it, does it look like numbing? Um, does it look like avoidance? Maybe it looks like hyper-control. Maybe it's uh, whatever. What is your release valve? Putting our weight into communion means taking our finger off of the release valve and trusting that we actually have access. Trusting that forgiveness actually is available, that new life actually is available, that we can actually come out into the open with our true selves before God and with one another, and that life and forgiveness and new creation is actually available to do that. It looks like me actually trusting that I can receive the words from that person. I can put my weight into it from that person who just wants comfort from me. I, I can actually give comfort to them, and it won't kill me. And if it does, God will raise it. Looks like putting my weight into it. Trusting that I actually have access. It means that I don't have to fear whatever death is there. We can be honest. We can come out in the open. By the way, this is, this is a kind of energy, but it's a different kind of religious energy than we spin up most of the time. Like a lot of the time, the religious energy that we spin up is energy like trying to fix, manage, and control or avoid like all the bad stuff. Does anyone feel exhausted from spinning up that kind of religious energy? Like what this is, to put our weight into it, is a different kind of religious energy. It's the kind of religious energy that doesn't spend all of our time trying to fix and manage and control all of our brokenness, but actually spends our energy putting our weight into communion with God, just going for it with God and with others. So I invite you to respond. I invite you to respond um, in the prayers of the people. Uh, a quick prayer that, that you can pray, a way that you can offer yourself if you feel led. Is, this is a prayer of thanksgiving, actually. And it's just, Father, um, thank you that, that you've granted me access to communion in. So we can just name, um, in hope, right? In the possibility that even though it doesn't seem like that there's communion there yet, that God has granted access there. God, I thank you that you've granted access to communion with me in this relationship or, or whatever. Amen.